who has called, caused all of the Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your Holy Word, we may embrace and ever hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The courthouse was a limestone monolith in the center of a decrepit city. It was ensconced by tall fences with razor wire at the top, and it was an island of justice for all that lay around it. There were broken brownstone buildings and dirty streets that were riddled with potholes and neon signs that had been broken years and years ago. Vagrants and prostitutes and gang members walking with a proud roll roamed the streets. These were the city's inhabitants. Every day, van after van would bring them through the fence into the mall of the criminal justice system. They came out of the van and they were wearing orange and their hands were in chains chains and they were seething with rebellion against the people that had brought them there and against the judge that they would soon see. Inside of room 39, the judge, a somber man, sat behind a walnut desk, ensconced with cornices and mitered corners and raised panels with Roman ogees and carved moldings and flutings, and the sheer mass of the desk conveyed that justice would surely be done. The room was empty except for court personnel. There were no friends or family that bothered to show up for the defendant. The defendant is accused of numerous crimes, among which are false testimony in a court of law, robbery, murder, and adultery. The crimes are too numerous to list, and during the opening statements, they will not be read in their entirety, but shall be a matter of court record. Now, how does the defense plead? And without hesitation, the defense attorney answers, Guilty, Your Honor. You may proceed to your opening statements. Your Honor, though the defendant has admittedly committed many crimes of a, of a heinous nature, I nonetheless submit to you that he should be set free. What? You, you hear me out, Your Honor. You'll, you'll see, I am willing to stand in his place. I'll pay the penalty for his crimes myself, and having done so, there'll be no more reason to hold him, and so he should be set free. You're aware that the penalty is death. Yes, Your Honor, I am. Here's the bad news. You're guilty. Here's the good news. You have the best defense attorney in the history of the whole world. You have an advocate who is willing to pay for your crimes, who is willing to pay for your crimes, who is able to turn away God's wrath, and is not only able to do it for you, but he's also able to do it for a multitude of other criminals as well. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so as this sets out, there is this... um, there is this language of the courtroom. The advocate is a language of the courtroom. And we have two main characters. 
Uh, the first uh, that we'll talk about is the judge, and he is God the Father. He is the Holy One who must punish sin. Ezekiel says the wicked he will destroy. Or excuse me, the Psalms say the wicked he will destroy. Ezekiel says the soul who sins shall die. In Revelation 20, we read that the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The nature of the judge is that he is holy and that he is just. He is one that must punish sin. And then, of course, there is the advocate, who is Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so when you look at this word advocate, the way that it was commonly used in this period of time was to talk about someone who was speaking in behalf of the defendant in a, in a court. In short, he was the defense attorney. And the advocate, Jesus Christ, says, yes, the, the, uh, the, the defendant is guilty as charged, but I will pay for him. And he is described as being righteous. He has committed no sins of his own, and so he can validly stand in the place of others. And so he died for you so that you would not have to suffer eternally. He is the propitiation for our sins. What? How many people here have ever used the word propitiation or even heard it used in normal conversation? Is this something that you hear at work? Okay, okay, yeah, yeah, you don't count. Um, I, I, I tried to look it up. The only reference that I could easily find was one from Tr Charles Dickens, you know, the guy that wrote the, the, the sentences that went on for like three pages and uses lots of obscure words. Nobody really says propitiation in normal <laughs> English conversation. Um, and so this probably isn't the best translation some people have said that a better translation is expiation well that's also not common english i don't know how many times i've used expiation in a normal conversation and worse it really only covers half the story it doesn't say everything that needs to be said and so it, in your translation you may also see atoning sacrifice well that's better that's a lot closer to common english but it still really only tells part of the story so Let's talk about what propitiation means. And I'll help you out with an illustration as well. So there are two parts to, to propitiation. The first is to turn away righteous wrath. And the second is to repair a relationship. So when we're talking about propitiation, you need to, need to think about righteous wrath being turned away and a relationship being repaired. You need to think about those two things. So... Let's say that your friend Fred came to you and he says, I, I really need some money. I have this debt that I need to pay off. And so you give him $1,000. Okay? You give Fred $1,000. Well, a, a few weeks after that, you just kind of mention that, uh, that he owes you something and he kind of blows you off. And then a couple months later, you mention the same thing and he, he doesn't really come forth with the money. He doesn't pay it back and he doesn't pay it back. And you begin to get a, a little upset with Fred because he hasn't done what he should. He's borrowed the money, but he is not paying it back. Well, George, who happens to know both of you, comes along and he says, well, I'll pay off Fred's debt. And he pulls all the money out of his back pocket and he hands it to you so that the debt has been paid. And then he goes to Fred and he says, look, I've paid off your debt, but you need to apologize for what you've done. 
And so Fred comes to you and he apologizes and there's a group hug and everybody's together and so the relationship has been repaired. See, George has fixed the problem. George has turned away righteous wrath and George has repaired the relationship bringing two people back together. Well, let's take this to our present situation. He is the propitiation for our sins. He has turned away the wrath of God the Father. He has turned away the wrath of God the Father. Now, some people are going to get a little upset at the very mention that God may have wrath. Well, I mean, really, this is a big deal, especially with Americans and especially with Eastern Orthodox people. They tend to think that God never has any wrath towards sin. And um, I would invite you to go back and read the Old Testament, the New Testament, look, and there are quite a number of times where God has wrath towards sin. But I, will like to, I would like to make one little mention of something that, that, that will help you with this misunderstanding. His wrath isn't exactly like our wrath. His wrath is not exactly like our wrath. How many people here have ever gotten mad at your spouse and, you know, upon looking back at it, you probably shouldn't have been nearly as mad as you were. Maybe you shouldn't have even been mad at all. You see, we tend to get mad in ways that are not righteous. But when God is upset, he always does it perfectly, and he always does it for a perfectly good reason. So that's, the, that's a misunderstanding that some may have. God's wrath towards sin is a righteous wrath. He is the holy creator. We are the creation. We have willfully done what we know that we shouldn't, and he has the right to be upset. And so here Jesus comes along and he says, I will pay for the sins of my people. I will take that wrath that you have towards these people, and I will turn it onto myself. I will take their sin upon my shoulders. I will endure the death that they, that they need to have. I will be forsaken in their place. I will pay the penalty for them. And so the wrath of God was satisfied through Jesus Christ. He took the debt that we owed for all of our sins, past, present, and future, so that there is nothing left to our account. He has fixed that problem. He has also repaired the relationship. We were created to have a relationship with God. When you think about how Adam and Eve related to God, they would walk with him in the cool of the day. They had a great relationship. They were able to talk with each other. But sin broke that relationship, bringing hostility into it. And man started to hate the laws of God and even God himself. In fact, Romans describes people who are not Christians as God-haters. But then there is this great change when we believe. John says later on in this letter, we love God and obey his commandments. That is a characteristic of being a Christian. We love God. He is the thing that is most important to us in the entire world so that nothing else could even compare with him. And we desire to obey his commandments. That doesn't mean that we'll always do so. But when we fail, we feel as though we should have. We want to do what is pleasing to him. Jesus' propitiation restores this relationship with God the Father. It restores that relationship that was lost in, in Eden. There is no more hostility or enmity between us and God. And so man and God can walk and talk together, enjoying each other. 
so how does this make you want to live differently here's one way have you ever been thinking about whether or not you should do some aspect of ministry or maybe uh talk about jesus and you think back to something that you have done in the past and say you know i'm not even worthy to be called a christian the devil reminds you of something that you've done. Maybe, maybe it's drunkenness. Maybe it's cheating on your wife. Maybe you stole money from work. And, and, you, and, and, and he tells you, you're not even worthy to call yourself a Christian. There is no way that you should claim to be one. You ever had something like that happen? The last time that Jeff spoke on 1 John, he talked about verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, when we sin in life, we confess our sins. We bring them to him, and we call it sin, and we call it, and we call it forgiven. We turn away from them, which in some cases may involve reparations, paying back that money that you stole from work, talking with your wife about your cheating. But we confess our sins and we turn from them continuously. And when we have done that, we can rest knowing that our sins have been paid in full. There is nothing left on our account. God looks at us as being perfectly holy because of what Christ has done for us. He sees none of our sins. He only sees the righteousness of Christ. And so when the devil tells you, that you shouldn't be doing, that you shouldn't be calling yourself a Christian, or you shouldn't be doing some part of ministry. You remember, this case is over. The sentence has been fulfilled. This one is done. This one is in the bag. Jesus has paid for your sins. He's paid for all of them, and nothing Satan can say, uh, nothing Satan can accuse you of, can be hung over your head anymore because you stand before God as holy. You can minister with confidence. This also means that you are able to fight sin. You're able to fight sin. Is there some sin that you, that you struggle with? I think that different people have different sins that they struggle with. Some, uh, some struggle with uh, lying. Uh, some struggle with gossiping. Some desire to have influence and power in the world. Some are prideful. There's all different sorts of things that people have that they, they you know, certain things that they look at and they say, man, I just, I, I feel like I, I can't get over this one. What's yours? What is one sin that you struggle with? Whatever it may be, your situation is not hopeless. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Imagine this. Imagine that there was a farmer, and the farmer went out into his field, and he sowed all of his seed, and he planted it, and he went home and did nothing else. He didn't go out and water it. He didn't go out and pull weeds. He didn't put out any fertilizer. In fact, he didn't even bother checking on it. Do you think he's going to grow very much? Those of you that have planted gardens in the past know the answer to this. If you don't water it, and if you don't take care of it really just about every day, especially tomatoes in July, they're going to die. It's not going to work. You must get out there and take care of it. Well, what kind of a farmer would God be then? God is the kind of farmer who starts something and then he sees it through to the end. He is the one who plants the seed, who waters it, and who makes sure that it grows. And he is going to make absolutely sure that it bears fruit. 
that which he has begun in you, he is definitely going to see through into completion. He isn't going to stop. And so if you struggle with that sin seven times or 77 times or seven times 77 times, he is going to continue to bring it into mind, showing you that you need to change, leading you to confession and repentance, and helping you to turn from it in the future. Because of what Jesus did, because of his propitiation, there is no sin that is hopeless. He is propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. So it's clear that this propitiation has global implications. And it should also be clear that we need to be very, very careful in what we think about when we think about the whole world. It's a very important phrase in this text. Very soon, St. Andrews is going to be offering a class on how to read the Bible. And uh, it is going to be a class that's going to help you to understand things, to look at different genres of scripture, uh, and to understand how things are worded and how to examine things so that you're able to understand the Bible and able to apply it to your life. Everybody in this room is invited to that class, and it starts right now. Words can have different meanings. Words can have different meanings. If you look into the dictionary, then you can see there's lots of different meanings that are listed for most of the words. For example, if you look at the word date in a dictionary, then you're going to see something that applies to a calendar, something that a boy and girl do when they go out, and then maybe a fruit, and there's probably going to be some other definitions as well. And so words can have different meanings. Well, another thing that you also need to realize is that different authors can use words in different ways. For example, you know, when James uses the word faith, he may have a fuzz of a different meaning than what uh, Paul would uh, mean when he was using the same word. And so it's important to look at the context and try to figure out what each author is trying to do with a word, what he is trying to say. Now, words can even be used differently by the same author. Sometimes the author will use a word one way, sometimes he'll use it another way. There's a couple of, of ways that, that there's actually a number of different ways that John uses the word world. But there are two of them that are predominant. The first is to, is to describe people who are opposed to God in some way, or ideas that are opposed to God in some way. And you can see that one in John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And so the world in this sense are people or their ideas in opposition to God. Does that make sense? That is one way to that John uses the word world. There is another definition, uh, and I have great uh, respect and ad ad admiration for Dr. Bill Barkley, who taught me this one. The other definition of world that John uses is the, the, the people all over the earth that will hear and will believe in Jesus Christ. World can be talking about this great mass of people taken from all over the world, all over the earth, I should say, that believe in Jesus. That's one of the ways that John can use the word world. And this is actually John's favorite way of using the word world. And if you look back 
at Johannine literature, John and the letters of John and Revelation, and you keep this one in the back of your mind, then it's really going to help you to understand a lot of things clearly that you had not seen before. So, he is the propitiation for the whole world. What, what are we talking about here? Well, it, obviously we're not talking about people in opposition to God. We are talking about people who will hear and will believe. What John describes in Revelation chapter 7, 9 is a great multitude that no one can count from every nation and tribe and people and language. Believers that come from all over. We have a propitiation from Christ that will change the entire world. That's what John is saying. So what does this mean for us? This means that no matter who we are ministering to, whoever we're sharing the gospel with, we know that they have the same problem and that there is the same solution no matter who they may be. That means that if you are dealing with an American at work, then sin is going to be his biggest problem. And the solution comes from the propitiation of Christ. He must repent and believe in Christ. You see that? If you're dealing with an engineer, if you're dealing with a guitarist, if you're dealing with a trash man, no matter who you're dealing with, whatever American you're dealing with, it's the same problem and the same solution. If you're dealing with a black person, then the big problem is sin, the big solution is Christ, you must repent and believe. If you're dealing with a white person, they must repent and believe. If you're dealing with a Chinese person in China, then they need to repent and believe. If you're dealing with a Uyghur in China, then they need to repent and believe. You know that in China there's actually uh, about 100 or so different people groups. The Uyghurs are those in uh, kind of northwest. They're kind of related to the Mongolians. Uh, tend to be more Muslim than, than you, know, in, you know, whereas Chinese tend to be Buddhist. They're a totally different people group in China, and they're going to have representatives gathered around the throne of God, those who have repented and believed, because the propitiation is for the Uyghur, not just for Americans. Any other way that people may divide themselves, you have the same problem and the same solution. Rich or poor, they need Christ. Democrat or Republican, they need Christ. Even the greatest division of them all, Alabama or Auburn, they need Christ. Everyone has the same problem, and there is one solution for it. Jesus repairs relationships between God and man by turning God's wrath away from all of us and turning it towards himself. Here's another way that we can use this. If the people of God are made up from believers from every nation, tribe, people, and language, then we need to make sure that people everywhere are able to hear about the propitiation of Christ. That means that we need to be involved as a church in missions. We need to be making sure that people over there, wherever over there is, know about Christ. We need to be making sure that people in Huntsville know about Christ. Right before the service, I was talking with some friends about the church plant. We are going to do one. It is going to be an evangelical uh, movement. It is something where we're going to be telling people about Jesus. We're going to be telling them the gospel. And, the, and God, in his power, is going to build a church through that. 
That is something that we're going to be involved in. It also means that you need to be telling people that you know about Christ. You need to be telling people that you know about Christ. Who is someone that you know that is not a Christian? You suspect that they're not a Christian. You suspect that they're not a follower of Christ. You need to tell them about him. You could use the verses that we're going over today, though, quite frankly, explaining propitiation is not the easiest thing to do. Here's a different idea. Start with something like Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I'll bet that everyone here can explain that, can't you? You can explain that everybody in the entire world has sinned. You can talk about how you sinned. You can talk about, and you know, this just, it's just part of who we are. We are sinners. And then you can explain that the wages of sin is death. You can explain that there are serious consequences for sin, and then you can also tell them John 3.16. I bet that everybody in here could quote that if I asked them to. Couldn't you? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You can do that, right? And you can explain that. You can explain that you need to believe in Christ. He's the one that paid for sins. That's what you need to do. That's what you need to be telling your friends. That's what you need to be telling your family. That's what you need to be telling people around you. And so that is another implication of a global propitiation. So, the case is over. The crimes have been paid for. You can go out, here, go out from here today living in joyful obedience, letting others know that you have the best lawyer ever. Charles Spurgeon said, Sinner as I am, and never more consciously so than I am now, than, than I am now that God's Spirit has enlightened me, I yet know that if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, and I, black, foul, and filthy, more foul and filthy than I ever thought myself to be, put my case into the hands of my advocate and leave it there forever and ever. Amen.